The reversal of Roe v. Wade has rocked America and the world. The 1973 Supreme Court ruling had protected a woman's right to seek an abortion for nearly half a century. Women in the U.S. now face an ever more complex patchwork of rules, with bans and limits in states where ultra-conservatives prevail. The U.S. was complacent. It should have codified reproductive rights in law before Roe was overturned. But take a closer look at the European Union. While the Europeans howl in outrage about the U.S. court ruling, they don't exactly have their own house in order. Sure, nearly all EU member states allow abortion, but national backsliding on abortion rights is widespread. And because EU treaties don't explicitly reference maternal health care, let alone abortion, EU authorities say they are powerless to protect European women. Women in Malta, which maintains a total ban. Women in Poland, which de facto ended abortion two years ago. And in Germany, where abortion still is in the criminal code. The situation has been particularly acute in Romania, where anti-abortion clerics exert strong pressure on caregivers. Take the case of Bianca. She's a Romanian. She was studying medicine in Germany on an Erasmus exchange, and she discovered she was pregnant while on a study program in Korea. Bianca eventually made her way home to Romania to terminate the pregnancy, but the doctor at her regional hospital was obstructive, even outright obnoxious, barely paying attention to the medical code. Bianca was, to all intents and purposes, left to fend for herself. No migrants more in. No Europe without Christianity. An alliance also with Russia. EU Screen, in association with EU Observer. Episode 77, Bianca's Story, Revisited. Bianca, thank you so much for doing this, and I'm sorry about what you've had to be going through. It could have been worse, I guess. <laughs> okay. Maybe maybe you want to tell me what happened. To be honest, I've always thought that abortions are very accessible in Romania until I personally had to have one, and I was completely shocked. So I didn't really pay a lot of attention before uh, what happened you go to South Korea for part of a medical exchange and you find out you're pregnant in South Korea and that's the first place where you seek to have a termination. I haven't even tried to do that. I just Googled and I saw that it's illegal. You can receive like a $2,000 fine or you can go one e- for one year in prison. So at that point, you're at what week, do you think? I was in my fifth week and I tried to find a plane ticket in such a way that it's not very expensive because, yeah, being a Romanian middle class person doesn't really afford you to travel from South Korea back to Europe whenever you you feel like doing it. (laughs) So I tried to find a ticket which is kind of affordable and that would give me enough time to make sure that I have the abortion before going back to Germany because right After the Korea exchange, I was supposed to come back directly to Germany and start having practical exams, which were really, really hard for me. So you do successfully find a ticket? Uh, Back to Romania. 
because I first Googled what's the abortion procedure in Germany. I thought of doing that. But in Germany, all women that want to terminate their pregnancy need to have a psychological counseling. But when I saw that I need three days between the counseling and the abortion itself, and I didn't know anybody so on, you, you can imagine, like, I'm, this has never happened to me before. I was in a really, really bad mental state. So I just thought that, oh gosh, I just want to go back to my hometown where my mother is and where I know people and doctors and yeah, everything will be fine. You get back, okay, you're in your seventh week. At this point, you go to the local hospital? Yeah, so a friend of ours talked to a nurse there who knew the doctor. So I could go with a referral uh, during the evening shift because my plane landed at 1 p.m. And the doctors in Romanian hospitals are only there until 2 p.m. Hmm. So I wanted to go in the same day. I, it was on a Monday. And then the next Monday, I was supposed to be in Germany and have exams. There can be cases where when the, where the pregnancy is not in the uterus, it's ectopic. And yeah, that's usually a surgical emergency and you have to be operated. So just having a simple pregnancy test on the toilet by yourself is not enough. When I was waiting for the doctor to finish seeing another patient, the nurse, and she was, she's like a family friend of my mother's. She sat next to me and she was like, oh, just one more thing. Are you sure you don't want to keep the pregnancy? And I looked at her and I was like, no, definitely not. I mean, it's really not among my plans right now or in the near future. She said, are you sure you don't want to keep this pregnancy? And I was like, no, definitely not. I want to become a doctor and a surgeon. And then she just turned away and she was, and she looked to the ground and she was like, okay. I could like feel her voice shaking a little bit. Like she was on the point of crying. Why do you think she had such strong emotions about your decision? Well, I would guess that it's because of religion reasons. Many people in my country are very, very, very religious. They just blindly believe whatever the priests tell them. If the priests even tell them sometimes to vote for a certain political party, they do it. Eventually, you do get a, an audience. You do get to see the doctor. Yes. Doctors in Romania are not actually um, known for their friendliness. They all believe they're gods. She had a, a typical doctor attitude. I tried to be humble. She's like, okay, so what's up with you? And I'm like, hello, I'm Bianca. I'm, I'm 24 year, years old. And the second I said I'm a medical student, she was like, oh, a future colleague. Wow. And, and she suddenly started smiling, which is quite an, an ordinary thing to see. <laughs> Romanian doctors. <laughs> I was like, okay, so I am pregnant. Okay, so what do you want from me? Okay, so I would like you to maybe give me the pregnancy diagnosis, like to make an echography to make sure that it's a normal pregnancy. Also, I would like to have an abortion. 
she was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay, let's take it to the echograph. She, she started getting, I, I could see in her attitude that she started getting quite angry and um, irritable, like she could barely sit in her uh, chair, you know, and she was like, yeah, it's a very healthy pregnancy, like very healthy pregnancy, like stupid idea to have an abortion, girl. I don't know if I hoped it to be an unhealthy pregnancy or not. Oh, <laughs> uh, I just knew if I wanted it to be over. At that point, I could barely speak. I looked at her for a couple of moments in silence and I was like, okay, so could I get like an abortion here? No, no, no way. Okay. Do, could you tell me where I could get an abortion? Uh, you know, sweetheart, we're like uh, three or four weeks before the Orthodox Easter. I'm not sure. We're in the Easter fasting. So I don't think you'll find anyone to help you with this. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of urgent. I'm in my seventh week. I just wanted to take the pill, eliminate the, the, the pregnancy, and that would be it. And then she said... Uh, maybe try to go to a non-Orthodox doctor, maybe an Arab doctor. But hey, y you study medicine, you know how Arabs are. So, first of all, there's the religious blockage. Second of all, it's Easter. And third of all, we get some racism. On top of that... <laughs> My mom was like going mad because she had a very nasty abortion once. I, I, I don't know how she's still alive during the communist times. So she's been through it. She was totally by my side. And she steps in and she says, uh, okay, doctor, if that's not possible, could you please give us the prescription for abortion pills? And the doctor was like, abortion pills? Do you really think that uh, those pills work? Uh, those pills don't work. You have no idea how many you have to take. And um, by the way, you can take those pills only until the 49th day. And you're in your 51st day. I looked at her and I was like, okay, but why is it then legally legal in Germany to take them until the 64th day? And she was like, oh, it's not a matter of being legal. It's a matter of actually working. And after the 49th day, they, they don't work, which is complete bullshit. Pardon my language. The studies clearly state that they work until the 10th week. They, they work very well until the 8th week. Then uh, they start working less and less and less until the 10th week. And then in the 11th week, it's already, it doesn't make any sense at all to try to take them. The doctor essentially said medically what you're asking for is impossible. But she didn't formally say, look, this is against my beliefs. Please, can you find somebody else? She did say this right before we left the room. My mom kept insisting, like, please. And she, the doctor was like, no, I'm sorry. It's just before Easter time. No, not just before, because this Easter fasting takes place like 40 days before Easter. So that's way more than a month. And there's another Christmas fasting, which takes 40 days. That means that almost three months per 
per year, women are not allowed to have abortions at all. No way, because it's fasting time. And this was the main hospital that's supposed to serve six million people. I mean, this just sounds like an excuse, right? I, I actually don't know I, how much these people believe in these things and how important these, this fasting was for her. But I'm always extremely surprised to see doctors that are so incredibly religious and that they let their religious beliefs affect the way they work. I, I don't think that's ethical. So your assumption here is, look, you're not going to find a doctor who will provide abortion during this period because everyone has to be even more religious during this period. Exactly. Okay. So my mom tells her, please, we, there is a way we can get these pills even without your prescription. Just please let us know like verbally how she should take them because protocols are different and we're not sure. Uh, at which point the doctor said, uh, you know what, she's a medical student, she can read herself. The reason I'm still a medical student and not a doctor is the experience and way more knowledge that she's supposed to have accumulated because she was like the same age as my mom, she she said at the end, like, uh, I have a daughter the same age as you, and but I'm really, really sorry. It's uh, before Easter. I cannot do it. So we were like, okay, have a good evening. And we just got out. So where did you turn to next? The clock is ticking. Exactly. Well, I, I was very lucky that we've had this connection to a pharmacist. He's, <laughs> ironically, he was, he is an Arab pharmacist. <laughs> and he used these pills for his wife as well once. And he totally helped us. He told me how to take them. The way he told me to take them was different from the protocols I found on the internet. But still, I did it his way, and it worked in the end. My only problem is, it's a very stupid thing, is that I didn't think about doing any antibiotic prophylaxis. The doctor at the hospital never mentioned anything about antibiotics. When I googled which are the protocols in uh, taking the abortive pills, I didn't just Google like on WebMD or Mayo Clinic that normal people go to. I went to like where all the studies, all the meta studies in all the medical fields are uploaded. It's so ironical that nothing about antibiotics was written there. <laughs> and it's just too bad that your pharmacist, he probably forgot, I guess. He forgot and even my mom forgot. So I arrived back in Germany on Sunday that week. And by Tuesday, I already had an infection. Like, it was noticeable. It was very noticeable. And the second I told my mom, she was like, oh, no, I, I forgot to tell you to take antibiotics. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, everybody just forgot. So were you doing your exams while you were suffering from this infection? 
Yes. So I was doing like my medical practice. And during the medical practice, I would have to excuse myself to go have an exam, come back to the hospital. It so happened that the first two weeks after I came back to Germany, I had like the worst tutors ever on that department. You got back and you find that the nice tutors aren't there, but the hard asses have taken their place. That was not really the thing I was prepared for, but both of the exams went uh, okay. So I had uh, pediatrics exams. I, I passed, not with the worst mark, but not with a very good mark either. I had the exam for gastroenterology and I was lucky because you can imagine I couldn't get myself together to study well enough. You got through your exams despite the ordeal. That means that you can continue to look forward to your medical career. What kind of ambitions do you have for that? I've been thinking about becoming a neurosurgeon since I was a second year medical student. Neurosurgery as a specialty. That's what I'm dreaming of. I would love to do my training as a resident doctor in Germany on neurosurgery. But first I need to go back to Romania, study for my last year, and then I'll start applying the places. There are not a lot of places on neurosurgery. You said earlier that a lot of the doctors in Romania behave as if they're gods. Do you think that's going to change or can you be part of that change? There are still lots of problems in Romania. Uh, not all of them behave like that, of course. There are good examples. Those examples are usually the doctors that have done a, a couple of years of their training abroad. Those doctors usually, when they come back, you, you can see, by the way, they uh, treat the patients. You can see a huge difference. It's been a couple of years since that conversation, so I messaged Bianca to see how she's doing. Things turned out fine in the end, she said. She completed her medical studies in Romania, but kind of gave up on the idea of changing the culture there. So she's in Frankfurt, working the round-the-clock shifts that young doctors tend to do. But even in Germany, the abortion regime there troubles her. Women must attend compulsory counseling, and they face a waiting period. Bianca says it's stupid, Stupid that women still are being made to feel they're doing something illegal when they terminate an embryo. As for the Roe v. Wade decision, she still hopes the whole thing turns out to be simply a bad joke. But the Americans aren't joking, of course. Even before the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, Texas was incentivizing citizens to sue anyone helping with abortions. In a macabre Wild West twist, Texas offered $10,000 cash bounties to successful plaintiffs. Ultra-conservatives in Europe aren't joking around either. They also use so-called lawfare tactics, litigation and the courts, to chip away at sexual and reproductive rights. And a good deal of that effort is led by well-funded, hardline Christian activists from the U.S. Here's Austrian Social Democrat MEP Eveline Regner addressing a European Parliament session in early July about the Roe v. Wade decision. In 2021, extreme conservatives from the U.S. have sent millions of dollars to Europe in order to limit our rights. 
And in Austria alone has received nine and a half million dollars. So this is impacting opinion in our democracies. Croatia is yet another EU member state where pro-choice proponents are increasingly concerned. Social Democrat MEP Tonino Pichula. Unfortunately, the healthcare system in Croatia is also influenced by conservatives so that we even have whole hospitals that refuse to grant access to abortion. We need to do uh, everything in order to prevent similar initiatives in our societies uh, that are inspired by this uh, humiliating decision. The European Parliament has signaled that it wants to change the game and inscribe the right to abortion in the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights. It's something French President Emmanuel Macron called for early this year. Stéphane Sejourné, MEP from Macron's Liberal Party. We need to know that uh, whatever the party in government is, that the rights of women will be protected. And so we need to give women in Europe uh, the guarantee that no judge will be able to withdraw these or overturn these rights. And there is no future for policies of this type in Europe. In a vote to include the right to abortion in the European Charter, there were 364 members of Parliament in favour, with 154 against and 37 abstentions. That was on the 7th of July. But there's been no rush to update the Charter, and nobody expects one. Such a change effectively requires unanimity among the EU's 27 member states, and there's no sign of that. Even then, there'd still be wrangling over a uniform approach on the time limits that circumscribe abortion, and on the circumstances when it's permitted. A symbol of Europe's complacency on the issue is the European Parliament itself. Early this year, its members elected a conservative, Roberta Metzola, as their president. Metzola, who has a history of strongly opposing abortion rights, recused herself from voting since taking the top job. So not even the head of the parliament will say overturning Roe v. Wade is bad for women. Pro-choice legislators do, for now at least, have a champion at another EU institution, the European Commission. All women across the EU should have adequate access to good quality health care and treatment. Sexual and reproductive health is part of it. Helena Dali, the commissioner from Malta overseeing equality issues, wants to hold the line on abortion rights in Europe. But as in the US, there are forces driving EU states further apart on the issue. Pointedly, on the 4th of July, American Independence Day, Dolly told the Parliament she wants the very same thing that pro-choice advocates in the U.S. still are also fighting for. Equal protection under the law. Women living in the EU must be equal and free in all aspects of their lives. Strong women's rights are an asset and a key feature of democracies. It is an achievement we must be proud of and nurture as it can be easily lost. That's it for this episode. EU Scream's nonprofit journalism is supported by listener donations, partnerships, and by advertising. 
and we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. For more details and for more EU Scream, visit euscream.com or click on podcast at euobserver.com. I'm James Cantor. Thanks for listening.